Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. I have the great pleasure of introducing you to Rabbi Jenny Rosen. Rabbi Rosen was ordained by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, where she was a Wexner graduate fellow, and she has since worked with many leading NGOs in American Jewish life. She joins us today in her capacity as Vice President for Community Engagement at HIAS, which is dedicated to mobilizing the Jewish community to advance HIAS's work with refugees in the United States and around the world. Rabbi Jenny Rosen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. So HIAS is a legacy organization, and it's one of the, the crown jewels of the Jewish world in America. But a lot of people may not know what HIAS actually does and its actions in the past, even though we're probably familiar with the actions. So why don't you connect the dots for us? Absolutely. So HIAS, um, many people know it by its former name, Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. HIAS is a 136-year-old organization. I like to, it's one of the dinosaur Jewish organizations (laughs) um, that has really reinvented itself for the 21st century. So it was founded in 1881 on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And it was the organization that welcomed and helped resettle all of the waves of Jewish refugees um, and immigrants that came to this country. As the various waves of migration came, Tsarist Russia, World War I, World War II, Iranian Revolution, most people are familiar with the most recent wave of the Soviet Jews who came. And so for the first 120 years, highest rescued and resettled Jewish refugees, about four and a half million actually during that period. And after the last wave of Soviet Jews came to this country, highest really had a choice to make, which was should we close up shop? Because there really are very few cease to be Jewish refugees, which is a good problem to have, or should the organization take all of its expertise and relationships and work with refugees of all different ethnic and religious backgrounds? I just want to point out, forgive me, I'm an historian, a medieval historian, but an historian nonetheless. Hayes responded to Tsarist Russia's pressure on the Jews, if I'm not mistaken, and Hayes is probably responsible for settling or resettling, as it were, the great number of Jews who came between 1881 and 1921, from whom the vast, vast majority of Jews are descended one way or another. So Hayes is a part of every Jew's story in this country for all intents and purposes. Certainly every Jew who came through... Uh, Ellis Island. After Soviet Jewry, so after Soviet Jewry, you're confronted with a new reality. With a new reality. And so the organization decided that rather than closing up shop to really reinvent itself, doing the same work, but with people who today are fleeing war and persecution. And who are in their vast majority not Jewish. And the vast majority are not Jewish, correct. Because there really, thank God, are very, very few Jewish refugees. We certainly help those few. There's still a few folks coming from the FSU. Mm -hmm. Um, We work with Iranian um, religious minorities, some of whom are Jewish, Baha'is, Erastrian, but a handful are Jewish. We just resettled one of the last Yemenite uh, Jewish families, but for the most part, 95% of the refugees we work with are not Jewish. And we like to say that we used to help refugees because they were Jewish, and now we help refugees because we're Jewish. And it really comes from a, a deep Jewish place and a sense that this is our story. This is who we have been throughout time, right? Not even just the last 136 years, but really since the beginning of the Jewish people. We've been a refugee people, and it's been our history and it's been our values. So highest today, the work that we do, we really do for describe it in four parts. One is that we work internationally. So we work in 12 countries around the world, helping refugees who have fled to those countries. So most refugees are not going to get resettled in a third country like the United States. Most refugees have to rebuild a life for themselves in that first country they fled to. So that might be... That's just a statistical reality. 
that they yeah they so I can talk a little bit about sort of the the whole way that refugee resettlement happens. Let me give us the overview, the overview but let's remember I'll, to go okay, back because we'll I think back. it's fascinating. So we work in twelve countries around the world. We work um, in addition to the United States in Kenya and Uganda and Chad. We work in South America, in Panama and Ecuador and Venezuela. In Latin America, are those Native American? No, they're mostly Colombian refugees, some of whom are indigenous, for sure, uh, who are fleeing from violence in Colombia. Oh. Uh, we work in Greece uh, with Syrian Syrians. and Afghani and Iraqi refugees. We work in Israel with the African asylum seekers right. um, in Israel. A lot of refugees coming through Ukraine, and then all of the Iranian minorities come through Austria. That's just the way that the, the flow works. And we just recently started working in Costa Rica with central a lot of Central American refugees um, who are coming to Costa Rica. So the work that we do internationally in those countries is three things. We offer legal services to help them ensure their basic human rights. We do a lot of psychosocial support and work. A vast, vast number of refugees have experienced trauma of some kind, either in the country that they were first in, that they had to flee, or during the journey, or sadly sometimes in the country that they arrived in. their country of refuge, right? And then the third area that we work on internationally is livelihoods because refugees need to have a way to support themselves and their families. So you could have your basic kind of legal rights, you can start to recover from trauma, but if you can't sustain your family, it's very hard to to live a a vibrant life. So that's the whole international piece of our work. The second area is domestically here in this country. So as I'll talk about in a minute, there is a small percentage of refugees who have the opportunity to be resettled in a third country like the United States. And so we do resettlement work here in this country. We do it in about 22 communities across the country in partnership with local organizations, mostly Jewish family service uh, agencies who are our partners on the ground, doing all the things that help a family that's come here to rebuild their life here. So enroll their kids in school and learn the transportation system and learn English and get jobs and find departments. Do you work in Canada as well? We don't work in Canada. There's an organization called JIAS, actually, uh, which works in Canada. And the Canadian system works a little bit differently. Um, In the United States, it's a private-public partnership. So everything is all resettlement. It comes through the U.S. government. In Canada, it's privatized. It's one of those funny flips where it's right, actually right. privatized it's in Canada right, and right. public in America. We'll take their health care. Yes, 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 absolutely. So, um, so we do resettlement work here, and that's a big piece of our work. And then the, the third thing we do is advocacy, to advocate for the rights and support of refugees. So this is a busy time for you. It's a very busy time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, very. It, there's no visual, so you can't see the rings, right, the right, rings right, under right, my right. eyes. But it's a very busy time. <laughs> you certainly have solved the problem of obsolescence. You... We, we, are, we are no longer obsolete. Um, we never were, but now everyone right, knows right, we're not. Right. And then the fourth piece is really something we've only started doing in the last few years and really a core part of my work, which is mobilizing the Jewish community in support of refugees. And this is your brief in particular? Yes. So I'm the vice president for community engagement. And community um, means Jewish community. The community means Jewish community, yeah. So you're yeah. sharing information, you're fundraising, you're... Yeah, it's not even, I mean, my, I'm not the development department, interestingly. That's, I work very closely with the development department. But what happened was when Hyas made this shift, it really was about 15 years ago that that shift started. But the American Jewish community sort of lost track of Hyas. And so Hyas was doing all this really important work, and the Jewish community had no idea. So even when I came three years ago... People would say, like, where are you going? You know, when I left the Nathan Cummings Foundation, I said, I'm going to work for Hyas. And they'd either say, what's that? Right. And I'd say, well, we used to be called the Hebrew Ingrid Aid Society. And they'd either say, what's that? Or they'd say, oh. oh, they resettled my grandparents. Or they helped the Soviet Jews. Nobody said 
the work you're doing in Chad is amazing or so important that you're resettling Bhutanese refugees in Pittsburgh. Like nobody knew what we were doing. Right. And so Mark Hetfield, who is our CEO, came on about a year before I did and felt like it was a really important time. He and the board really understood that it was time to really reintroduce highest to the American Jewish community and for the American Jewish community to really engage around refugee issues as Jewish issues. So I came on to really head up that effort. We developed a strategy for doing that around education and profile raising and then engaging people through service and advocacy and Sadaka for sure. sure. But we had uh, no idea, you know, September 2015, there really was this great awakening that happened, right? So the refugee crisis had been going on for years and years and years, including the Syrian refugee crisis, right? It's been going on since 2011, but no one was really paying attention. So the Syrian refugees migrate, fled mostly to Jordan and Turkey and Lebanon, and they were there for years, and no one really paid much attention. When conditions got so bad that they started to migrate to to Europe, Europe, that's when the media started covering it differently. And that's when America and the American Jewish community really woke up. And, you know, that's when we started to see those eerie images of refugees trying to cross borders on trains in Europe, which, of course, is like so resonant for us. Bodies Um, on the beach. Bodies on the beach. I mean, that photograph of Ayan Kurdi, the three-year-old boy whose body washed up on the Turkish shore. I mean, that's one of those iconic photos. I think about having grown up in the 70s, the Vietnamese girl running. Right. right? right, So this was a photograph that I just think broke open people's hearts and really opened our eyes. The American Jewish community really woke up to a crisis that had been going on, you know, for years. And it happened, you know, it was right around the holidays. So we had rabbis, you know, calling, saying, oh, I have to I have to rewrite my sermon, you know, help, what do I, you know, like I have to talk, I have to preach about this. And so it became a moment where communities really said, we need to we need to respond to this. And the Jewish community, I think it's fair to say, is pretty well equipped as minority communities go with a pretty deep infrastructure and social services. You cited Jewish Family Service. I don't know if you work with uh, JDC and with Israel Aid. I don't know. But I imagine that there's a lot, a lot of infrastructure with which to work. Absolutely. We work with Israel Aid. We do some partnering with them in our international, in our international work, and, and we certainly work in coordination with JDC. JDC is a great partner. Their work is, is less focused on refugees, right, right. but in our international, you know, a lot of coordination with them internationally. In this country, communities are really needed. You know, the whole idea of resettlement is in America needs to be a private-public partnership. So communities um, and congregations are a great, as you said, infrastructure for supporting refugees. So one of the ways that we've been working, we have a, a welcome campaign. We have about 360, I think, and counting uh, congregations who've signed on to the highest welcome campaign, which means they've made a statement of support in support of welcoming refugees to America, regardless of their you know, ethnic or religious backgrounds. And then they've committed to do one thing. And that can look really different for some congregations. That's education that's beginning to learn. And we do a lot of speaking and teaching and helping people to to understand not just the issue, but how deeply Jewish it is as an issue. And some congregations are doing advocacy and some congregations are are working with a family, um, some going so far as to co-sponsor, you know, the resettlement of a family. So we have congregations, including quite a few reform congregations who are co-sponsoring the resettlement of a family. So the congregations have organized into committees, you know, to support the kids, to help with job mentoring, to do ESL tutoring, to drive, you know, refugees early on need a lot of sort of just driving and learning how do you manage the transportation system and the medical system. Figuring it out. Figuring it all out. So it's really been a moment where some of those same congregations had resettled 
Vietnamese refugees. A lot of them had resettled Soviet Jews and really had not paid much attention to the crisis since then. Mm. And it's a huge, I mean, we're, if I'd been sitting with you a year ago, I would have said there are more refugees and displaced people since World War II. Sitting here now, I have to say there are more refugees and displaced people than in recorded history. Wow. Um, There's 65 million. Whoa. What anyone listening to this would immediately assume is the Syrian refugee crisis is boosting up those numbers, but your 65 million is much, much bigger than just the Syrian. Much bigger. Much bigger. So, I mean, the Syrian is the largest single mm-hmm. population right now, but it's hardly, it's not even the majority. I right, mean, right, it's, right. I think there are 5 million yeah, Syrian refugees and about 7 displaced people. So, displaced people are people who have fled for the same reasons but haven't crossed an international line. So, they're like still in Syria, displaced. Right, right. Going from one um, war zone to another. Exactly. Or... Exactly. So, no, there are many other hotspots across the world. Clearly, the sheer volume of refugees has to be your top dominant priority in Hyas. But what are some of the other major challenges that Hyas faces that perhaps we're not as readily aware of? Absolutely. So, I mean, what's going on in America right now is catastrophic. Refugee issues have always been a bipartisan issue through every administration. It's been a question of how we work with the government, not, you know, whether. I think about the 1920s right now. There really hasn't been a time since then when America has slammed shut its doors the way that it is now. 1921, 1924 is when the United States started uh, its very, very rigorously isolationist policy, which is the period that marks specifically the end of the great European migration to the United States, including the Jews. And that's why we say from 1881 to 1921 is when the most yes. Jews immigrated. So so you're saying that if we look at this, the history of our, of our nation, the United States, that there has never been a time that our doors were as closed, as tightly, as they are now, with the exception of 1921, 1924? That's certainly the most recent slamming. So it's, so it's a we, major watershed, it's a, major watershed a policy moment. watershed. And, and we are, together with other refugee organizations, and together with a lot of the really mobilizing the Jewish community to stand up and say, this does not reflect our values as Jews, and this does not reflect our values as America. This is not true to who we are as a nation. It is unacceptable for us to be closing our doors to people who are fleeing persecution. Our country was founded on the values of welcoming and being a refuge to people who were fleeing persecution. And as Jews, right? Sure, we we're about need to welcome a stranger. Yeah, and why, you know, Kigirim Haitem Barrett means Ryan, because we were strangers in the land of Egypt. This is who we've been it's part over of our and DNA, over again. Absolutely. It's part of our DNA. And so what we are, are seeing are Jewish communities across the country really mobilizing and advocating. Um, we just had a, a national day of Jewish action on, on February 2nd after the first executive order. And we had a big rally in the shadow of the Statue of Liberty in New York City. We had several dozen of the major, I would say almost all of the major national Jewish organizations co-sponsored it. We had almost a thousand people in a huge sleet storm. And then we organized 20 sister actions across the country on that same day. And this was really a strong statement of the Jewish community saying, we will not stand for this. The other value that's clearly being decimated is, is one of religious non-discrimination. Yeah, um, that's, that's part of the conversation around the Muslim There's no question that this is a Muslim ban. Before we return to the Bully Pulpit, we want to tell you about other programs on the College Commons platform for digital learning. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, synagogue subscriptions offer in-depth learning for adults and teens, including online courses, live video interviews, and enhanced podcast episodes with text and teaching tools. 
We look forward to meeting you at collegecommons.huc.edu. Now, back to our podcast. Hias is clearly raising grassroots awareness, going to communities, leveraging everything you have at your disposal. It's, it's really evident. Are you also engaged in some kind of lobbying effort directly to the government? Absolutely. One of the main plaintiffs in one of the suits against the government, the uh, Maryland suit, you've probably heard of the Hawaii, yes, the Hawaii yes. case in the Maryland suit. So we are one of the major plaintiffs in the Maryland suit, which as you know, you know, we just recently received an injunction yes. on the second piece of it, which is the religious discrimination piece. Uh, this gets like super technical, <laughs> but the Hawaii, you know, the Hawaii case ruled more broadly on more pieces of it. It it ruled on the 120-day break. It ruled on the lowering of the number from 110,000 to 50,000, but it's a temporary restraining order. So altogether, like Saka Cole, it all all adds up to the fact that there are now two cases, you know, strongly saying this is unconstitutional. And we're going to continue to fight. I mean, there's no question that the administration is going to come back. They've already already filed an appeal on Friday. To our case, no, this um, is this is uh, this is going to be foreseeable future, foreseeable so. future, and and we're going to keep you know fighting it every step of the way, and the Jewish community is going to keep standing up and saying this is not this is not what we stand for, and the number is an interesting piece. So the the hundred and ten thousand. Let me backtrack a second. So we talked before about like what happens to all of these refugees. Right. So the Refugee Convention of nineteen fifty one actually grew out of the Holocaust. Right? It, the whole legal concept of what is a refugee, it's a legal concept. It means that you are fleeing persecution based on one of five things, race, religion, nationality, political group, or social membership, membership in a particular social group. Notably absent is economic motives. Correct. And this has, Correct. Been, a, this has been a really complicating uh, factor, hasn't it? Well, so economic migrants are migrants and They're immigrants not considered and have all sorts of reasons for leaving and all sorts of reasons why we should be welcoming them. They're not refugees. Right. So all refugees are immigrants, but most immigrants are not refugees. Right. So refugees is a legal status. You have to show that you have reasonable peer fear for returning to your country. And this grew out of the Holocaust when countries closed their doors or worse, sent people back to their deaths. And so the nations of the world came together and said, we're not going to let this happen again. And so that was the 1951 Refugee Convention. That's all, that's sort of the basis of the very concept. And they said, so what should happen instead? And in refugee speak, they talk about three durable solutions, three things that could happen. So one is repatriation, right? That's what most refugees want. They want to go home. They want to go home, they want to go home just, as, just as we would. Sadly, that's often not possible, or if it's possible, it may not be possible in their lifetime. Mm. Maybe possible. In their kids' lifetime, but then it's a dubious desire. Exactly. Because the conflicts are so entrenched. The second is integration. And this is what most refugees need to do, which is to make a life for themselves in that country they first fled to. So it might be a Congolese person or a Congolese family who flees conflict there and comes to Uganda and we work, you know, highest works in Uganda with refugees who are making a life for themselves in Uganda. We're seeing this with uh, Haitians in Mexico now. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing it lots of, I mean, those are the Colombians coming to various parts of South America. Those are lots of refugee camps in, in Chad, with Sudanese, all over the world. You could sort of draw a map of all of the, the various refugee populations. And a very, very fortunate small minority, it's less than 1% of the world's refugees, have the opportunity to be resettled in a third country, like the United States or Europe or Canada. Those are the. the what main are the ones. criteria whereby yeah, you refer to luck, but 
There's clearly some selection. <laughs> it is. So it's generally the most vulnerable are identified. So those might be single women head of households or victims of torture, survivors of torture, LBGT, refugees, single unaccompanied children, people who are particularly vulnerable. And then once they're identified, begins the whole security screening process. And that's, there's been a lot in the news about that. Indeed, indeed. Um, the claim from the administration that the screening process currently is weak and the counterclaim that it's Robust. It's very robust. I mean, we have extreme vetting now. Anyone who is identified for resettlement goes through five agencies, Department of Defense, Homeland Security, State Department, FBI. It's an 18 to 24 month process. And at any point, multiple in-person interviews. And then there are also parallel health screening. That all happens before anyone ever comes to this country. It's not like in Europe where people cross borders. So the people who are resettled in this country have been extremely vetted. And one of the things that's been so frustrating about the administration's claim is that they haven't pointed to anything and said, this is where the weakness is, right? It's the a blatant... accusation, the, the charge leveled by the Trump administration is broad and nonspecific, which makes it very difficult to refute or to ameliorate if you want to point out that it is in fact robust. Right. Well, it actually, I think, is a weak argument. I mean, I think it's no, a, it weakens yeah, his, well, his claim because the, unless you point to something and say... Uh, right, weakens his claim from a, uh, from a critical perspective. From a rhetorical perspective, unfortunately, <laughs> it has more legs than perhaps... Even. Well, except that we can point to the fact that we have been resettling Muslim refugees for years. I mean, the Syrian refugees are only the most recent, but we have been resettling Iraqi refugees and Afghan refugees and Somali refugees. Perhaps you can clarify something for me, which has driven me crazy of late. I think it's mostly been NPR, but in, in some popular media, the critical journalists have made a point of pointing out what you just said, which is a fact I think most of us know and accept that there have been Muslim refugees coming to this country for a long time. And then they hasten to point out that None of the refugees from the seven, I think now six, countries uh, under the ban have been implicated in fatal terrorist attacks. What drives me crazy is the word fatal. It feels like a dodge. It begs the question, well, have they been involved in non-fatal terrorist attacks? And I'm not particularly suspicious that, that they're a dangerous crowd. I'm, I'm with Hayes on this. I mean, I want us to to welcome for all the Jewish reasons you articulated. But it, it's, a, it's a really terrible response <laughs> because it simply raises more questions. So can you help me factually? Well, I think, I think that you know, there are a lot of different ways to, to parse it. There have certainly been specific incidents. I mean, there was recently uh, an incident with, a, I believe, a Somali mm -hmm. you know, refugee. I think it's, I don't want to say it's beside the point, but it's sort of besides the point. Meaning we have a very robust, the screening process for refugees is the most difficult way to get into this country. It's much harder than a student visa or a tourist visa or a fiance visa or a work visa. If you're going to come to this country as a terrorist, you're not going to come as a refugee. So this conflation of terrorism and refugees is really, it, it's not based in, in fact and it's not based in reality. It's, a, it's an extremely tight security process. The United States also has, has made a commitment. You know, this has been America's, I mean, we forget 1939, right? Two months after Kristallnacht, there was a Gallup poll asking Americans, should we welcome 10,000 German refugees, mostly children, Jewish refugees to this country? And two thirds said no, right. too dangerous. First of all, they might bring their communist ideas yeah. Right, fear of their mindset, their worldview. 
and there might be Nazis trying to slip in. Mm -hmm. And they said, no, it's too risky. And we, as a country, stand once again of making that same fatal mistake. Right, right. No, I, of confusing I, our enemies with the, the victims of our enemies. I, I think it's a great argument. I just am frustrated by the rejoinder brought by journalists. <laughs> right. that, uh, it, it strikes me as not having the kind of traction that your argument has, which is a very, very clear argument, that that we manage these risks very, very vigorously. I think the other piece that's so misunderstood is 120 days, aside from the fact that it's not clear what it's actually trying to Yeah, what address. do you achieve in 120 days? Uh, totally unclear. Are they going to cease to be terrorists in 120 Totally unclear. It doesn't actually mean 120 days because a lot of the all those security checks can expire. It's not like 120 days, then uh -huh. everybody can just start coming. It's not clear what happens at 120 uh, days. And they could easily stall by restarting the clock. Completely, or, or... completely. And all of the agencies, so there are nine organizations that do all the resettlement in America. Highest is one of them. Uh, six of them are faith-based. So we have like the Lutherans and the Evangelicals and the Catholics, and then three of them are non-sectarian. The International Rescue Committee is the most well-known. So everybody who's resettled in this country comes through one of those nine organizations. It's going to be very hard for all of that infrastructure for resettlement to sustain itself while there are no refugees coming. So already there have been tremendous layoffs. Tremendous, oh, you know, yeah. lack of. Um, so that we're going to we're going to lose capacity to yes. act. Yes. Because uh, yes. a false dam has been put yes. up, and then when the dam breaks down, and even more people come out, yes. once they're going to be understaffed, yes. even worse. And this happened after 9/11, when there was a dip uh, in the number of refugees. It took years to rebuild the capacity in this country. I also, you know, this number, so where does 110 come from? Where does 50,000 come from? Since the 1980 Refugee Act, which is sort of when our resettlement as we know it, the sort of process started, the president determines a certain number of refugees that America is going to resettle. It's a presidential decision. It's a presidential decision. It's called the presidential determination. And it um, has varied tremendously. So like in the, with the Vietnamese boat people in 1980, 200,000. Mm -hmm. Which And we had much less capacity then, and yet we managed to do 200,000. The last number of years, it had hovered around 70,000. And then President Obama, 2016, was 85,000, and we resettled 85,000. Um, about 10,000, give or take, were Syrian. And then the number that President Obama set for this year, 2017, is 110,000. And that's the number that the Trump administration is trying to roll back. 50,000 is the lowest ever. You think about 65 million refugees and displaced people, and the United States, 50,000. I mean, it's. I think the technical term is bubkis. I mean, it's it, it's it's a shanda. You don't need to convince me. Uh, <laughs> so, you pointed out that not so many years ago, though there were already many many Syrian refugees, Americans weren't simply aware of it, until certain journalistic events took place and our mindset changed, and now we face. Uh, dealing with large numbers of refugees, uh, political uh, disagreements about how to do so, really high-stakes problems. What are the comparably high-stakes problems that we face now, but that, just like the Syrian refugee crisis a few years ago, are going unnoticed by us? There are certain refugee populations, Congolese, Colombian, Afghani refugees, Iraqi refugees. There are just many hotspots. I think Central America is one that we have a particular relationship to. So in the Triangle region of in Central America, tremendous violence, particularly gang-related. In Honduras is the murder capital of the world. Mm -hmm. um, children being forced into gangs, young girls being forced to marry gang members, and many people fleeing 
you may have heard, you know, of the unaccompanied children, right. families coming over the that border. came up in the presidential debates. Um, right. So they're coming as asylum seekers, right? So asylum seekers are people fleeing for the same reasons as refugees, but they don't yet have refugee status. They're seeking refugee they're status. They're seeking refugee status. And for us, the folks who come as asylum seekers are largely, many of them from Central America, because that's our border, Definitely right? So they make these incredibly dangerous journeys on foot, on the tops of trains, in the backs of trucks smuggled with, you know, hundreds of other people in suffocating, often literally suffocating conditions, children coming up, all the way through Central America, up through Mexico, across our border, and then are often at, held... At the mercy of smugglers. At the mercy of smugglers, at the mercy of incredible violence, and, and, and children and women often taken, you know, advantage of in the journey. And if you can imagine, I mean, this is true for all refugees, and this was true for our family, like what you had to be fleeing to put your family at risk like that. I mean, you think about the stories we hear of Jews, you know, parents putting their kids on trains, parents handing children through fences. I mean, that is all happening in real time. And you think about what it would take for a Honduran woman, you know, as a mother, I think about this all the time, to send my 10-year-old off. I recently had the opportunity to sit with some of these mothers who had come with their children in a, in a Berks detention, in Berks, which is a detention center in, in Pennsylvania, where they're being held, you know, essentially in jail. I think increasingly we need to be very aware not only of the refugee crisis, but of our asylum system here and be really vigilant in these coming months of whether people are getting fair hearings, whether there's legal representation. We already started to, even before the Trump administration, hear of cases of you know, children not having representation. If you can imagine, you know, asylum law, I don't even fully understand um, you know, what, it, what it would take to represent yourself. I mean, it's, it's absurd. And for us to, to, very scary to think about deportations and to think about the United States deporting people back to death. Right. Um, which right. is what it As would they be. did with our, with As our they fellow did with Jews. Our, with our fellow Jews. So where's the ray of hope? Where can we look to great examples or things we can do? You know, refugees are incredibly resilient by definition. Like when you think about what you have to endure and choose to leave and then have this journey that can often take months or even years, and then you arrive in a country and then you're identified for resettlement and you go through security path, and then you arrive here in this country. But if you could also imagine what it's like to arrive here in this country at this moment, and I think one of the things that we can do is really work to become welcoming communities for those few refugees who are coming and for those who are already in our midst. How do we become a nation that really is true to its values and, and welcome? And how do we as Jewish communities create welcoming communities? One of the things that has most struck me, I mean, it's sort of a, it's both a profound and a troubling ray of hope, you know, is what the human spirit can endure. I think about some some young teenage girls that I met um, in Uganda. They were Congolese. They had been impregnated by rape. And they were in a group that Hyas was holding. And they were struggling to come to terms with what had happened and to become mothers, to figure out how do they become you know, mothers to these children. And at one point in the midst, there was, of course, many tears and a lot of, a lot of pain. And at one point, they began singing. And I, I think of that often. You know, as a rabbi, I think a lot about sort of what what can we what can we endure and what can we then become and emerge from that, right? What's the transformational nature? And I just there are things that you would think no human being could ever endure that, and no human being should ever have to endure that, and yet people do, and they are able to many of them, not all of them, survive, and our job is to help them then to thrive. 
And I think, you know, the Jewish community has a really important role to play right, right now in history. We're at, on the one hand, a devastating moment in history in terms of America and the refugee crisis globally and where we are as a nation. But we're also, you know, as Jews, we're, it's the first time we have not been refugees ourselves and instead been in a position to change the future for today's refugees. And, and so I think that there is an incredible role for the Jewish community to play, together with other, with other faith groups for sure. But we, we have a really special obligation as a refugee people who for the first time in history are not ourselves refugees at a time when, when the world is, is really faced with a heart-crushing number of refugees. You know, I would just close by saying that I think we have a, a, a role to play that is, that is an obligation and is a calling and is something that communities across the country, I'm really proud to say, are, are stepping up. Thank you for Hyas's role in making that ray of hope possible and calling us to join you in this really, really important work. And uh, Rabbi Jenny Rosen, it was such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. I wish you and Hyas every success. Thank you. You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.